Today's podcast is sponsored by Inner Professional Online Training Programs. With courses geared specifically for legendary leaders, Inner Professional provides an extraordinary catalog of leadership and professional development programs unlike any online training you've experienced before. Hone your conscious and authentic leadership skills with peer group, networking communities, direct engagement with life experts, and a wealth of compelling, easy to engage on demand content. Learn more at kathleenmerkel.com slash innerprofessional. Hello and welcome to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. My name is Kathleen Merkel and I'm the host of the show. And together with a wide range of legendary leaders themselves and experts in the field of self-leadership, we are going to explore concepts and ideas that show you how you can move past your fears, negative self-talk and constant doubts in order to encourage you to becoming a legendary leader yourself with far more natural impact, influence and inspiration. So are you ready for it? Well, welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of Legendary Leaders. Thank you for tuning in and for listening to us. I've prepared and lined up another guest for you. His name today, Rob Dubin, and he is a master in realizing your dreams and living a happy life. Why is it important to talk about this topic on a podcast called Legendary Leaders. Well, if we are not focusing on our life from a holistic perspective, where we feel happy, where we realize what's truly important to us, well, how are we going to show up as our best selves in every part of our life? And that includes work too. So let's talk about it a little bit more. He is going to share with us some incredible insights apart from how to be a happier person and how to learn how to live a happier life. And he shares a few steps of his framework with us. He also shares a framework with regards to realizing your dreams with us. We are talking about a great resignation and how the mindset and the thought process of people have shifted in particular throughout the time of the pandemic. We're also talking about some paradigm shifts that are happening in organization. And oh, I'm so grateful for it that they are finally happening where people are and must be considered from a more holistic perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, people bring to work their whole selves, everything. And Rob would say, if you have a conflict at home and if you are not your happiest self uh, in your personal life, well, it will have an impact on you at work. And that's absolutely right. And if you are very stressed or burned out at work, it will come home with you and it will have an impact there. So we are talking about this whole life approach and that there isn't a work-life balance. There's just one life. Work plays a role in it. So a really important point to make, the importance of, as I said, seeing people as their whole selves, right? And what they bring and looking after people, not just the people at work and to make them happy at work. And why happiness doesn't just come to us. Happiness, according to Rob, needs to be taught. And it's a topic that actually should be taught already in school. So how can we catch up on that? How can it be learned? 
And obviously, we've got to talk about Rob's life as well. I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever met a person who brings so much experience, adventure, paired with emotions and vulnerability to the table. Um, he and his wife spent 17 years living on a sailboat, and he would say a very, very small sailboat and sailing around the world. And along the way, they shared their lives with and learned from people of diverse cultures in over 100 countries. He's truly lived an extraordinary life and the insights on human fulfillment he gained along the way provide both inspiration and a map for his audience to navigate transformation in their own life. So a lot of reflection has happened on that trip and obviously beforehand already as well on that. He shares with us today, what are these insights? What can we learn from his learnings that he brought with him uh, from his trip? Rob's entire life has been about following his passions. And only at the age of 22, he started his own film production company. And before long, was working all over the world for TV networks and Fortune 500 clients, making the kinds of films and TV shows that inspired him and his audience. So living a life of passion and purpose is really important to him. He is a, a triple entrepreneur with his last company reaching a million dollars in sales five months after the startup. And his own businesses and film work with Fortune 500 clients across dozens of industries complement his life lessons learned from sharing meals with both billionaires and barefoot villagers on six continents. He has been married to Dee, his film producer and life partner for over 39 years. That is an achievement in itself. And uh, you will sure find inspiration and transformation in all of his unique programs. But as I said before, in everything he is sharing here with us today, when he's not motivating others, Rob spends his time skiing, mountain biking or kayaking with his wife and flying his gyroplane near his home in the Rocky Mountains. So adventure is really his life. Enjoy this episode here today and do let us know what you've made of it, what you've taken away from it, or perhaps you may have some more questions you'd like to share with us. Anyway, enjoy. Well, welcome to the show, Rob. It's a pleasure to have you here. Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. I'm glad to be here. How are you doing? Oh, we're doing wonderful. It, uh, we live in a beautiful part of the Colorado Rockies. I'm going skiing as soon as our interview's over here. Ooh, nice one. I always see the pictures on Instagram um, by a friend of mine who lives in Colorado now as well. And I'm so jealous of all the outdoors adventures that she's on every day, literally in front of the doorstep. You have just the beauty of nature, haven't you? Yes, that's where I live is just like that. We uh, we have a river to run whitewater kayaking and rafting all summer and fishing right next to us and mountain biking and uh, skiing all winter. And so, uh, yeah, we're, we're in the middle of all that excitement. You're in the middle of all that excitement, but it's not as if you haven't had any excitement in the last years of your life. <laughs> we are going to talk about that a little bit more. What you have been doing for 17 of those years, um, what you have been doing before that, all the challenges and learnings and interactions on the way. And usually, Rob, I would ask my guest, can you please introduce yourself and share with the audience what you are doing? I feel if I did that with you, we would literally exceed at least two hours 
of that podcast recording. So let's do it in bite-sized chunks and start with, you know, what is it you are doing right now? What is it you are specializing in? Well, I've been retired for a long, long time. And uh, during the pandemic, I uh, started looking for what I wanted to do for the next chapter of my life. I'm in my uh, mid to late 60s. And I've really been for the last number of years in about inspiring other people to go after their dreams because I spent the first uh, 60 years of my life going after my dreams. And I still do that in a very big way. But I realized that I can use my story to inspire other people to to dream big dreams and go after their dreams. So that's what I try and do now. Oh, yes. And I remember our initial conversation and I left that conversation with full excitement, went into the kitchen to chat to my partner about this conversation. I'm like, oh, my God, I've just come off, you know, 45 minutes of a chat and I feel buzzing and I feel positive. And I'm like, he's got so many valid points in particular about happiness. So let's talk about that a wee bit more. And I'm curious, Rob, on a scale of Let's say one to 10, one being very low and 10 supercharged. How happy do you feel at the moment? Oh, I'm a 10 every day, all day, every day. I, I spend almost all my waking hours being in love with my wife and in love with my life and feeling gratitude. Uh, so that's really my primary predominant emotion all day, every day is gratitude. I realize how lucky I am to have the love and relationship in my life that I do and to have the life that I have and to get to share that with other people. Oh my God. Oh, what can I add to that? Um, podcast episode over. <laughs> Thank you well, so I've, much. Uh, I've managed to create my life in a way that uh, emotions like regret or anxiety or worry are almost never a part of my life. Uh, you know, sadness is a part of my life when there's a sad event. I, a friend of mine of 50 years just passed away and the funeral was yesterday. So I experienced that kind of sadness. But, you know, it's related to that event and, and it goes on by and, and the rest of my life is sadness and anxiety are just not a part of it. Mm. How do you, did you get to the point where you can say sadness and anxiety are not a part of my life. Did you have to get to the point? Perhaps it has always been like that. Well, the uh, researchers in this field of positive psychology, one of the early researchers identified that about 40% of our, I guess she would say that our capacity for happiness is actually baked into our DNA. And she did some tests with identical twins and things like that. And that's what her claim is. I know some of the subsequent scientists have said maybe that's not right. And so I don't know if I got it from my DNA, but regardless of where I received it, I've figured out how I can teach other people to have it, whether it was in their DNA or not. And so that's one of the things I do is I teach sort of a, a recipe and a framework for happiness. And the great thing about it is that you do that within organizations or for organizations as well. And that's a part of the show that I would love to focus on a little bit more. Before we hit the record button, you and I were chatting about the Great Resignation and how you see it and observe it in the, in the US. 
and I brought a bit of the European view into the game as well. So what is your perspective on the great resignation that has become such a big term over the last year in particular? Well, that's actually why I sort of changed what I was doing as a public speaking career, because I was talking about this idea of this framework for happiness and this insights for an extraordinary life. And we can talk later on about the things that you alluded to and that I've done in my life. And that's what I was sharing with people and trying to inspire them. And really good motivational speakers don't just offer an opportunity for how you can have a better life, but they solve a problem that you're aware that you have. And so as I kept hearing about this great resignation, I saw this disconnect because the HR experts, they focus on how to make their employees happy at work. And so all the HR surveys that they do, the engagement surveys and the exit interviews with people that are leaving their job, they're asking them questions about how can we make you happy at work? Yeah. Why were you not happy at work? And then I listened to like national public radio reports where people called in talking about the great resignation. And when they talked about why they left their jobs, none of them used the word work. Mm -hmm. They all said, I was dissatisfied with my life. Mm -hmm. And I was ex the COVID, the pandemic gave me a chance to examine my life. And so I saw this disconnect that in companies are trying to make their employees happy nine to five and they're not caring about the rest of their life. Mm. And the people left their jobs because their life was not as they imagined it. So that was the big, uh, one of the, I, I've seen three paradigm shifts and that was the first paradigm shift is that people started asking themselves questions during the pandemic. They asked these questions of, is my life going the way I wanted it? Is it, is it turning out the way I imagined it when I was younger? And a lot of them answered no. So that was the first paradigm shift. What that was, was the, the first paradigm one? shift that I saw and that HR people were not really, they're using old thinking and we've gone through this cataclysmic change. So you can't just offer benefits and more compensation. That's not what Agreed. people are looking for. The second paradigm shift was we've had this idea of work-life balance that people are trying to find the balance like as if it's a, a seesaw or a teeter-totter mm. and you've got to get the balance right. And I've never bought into that concept because I don't think you can do something for half of your waking hours and put it in a box and call it work and have it be separate from your life. You know, if you have a good day or a good morning at home with your family and your partner and your kids, it, you take that with you to, to the office. Of course. And likewise, if you have a bad day at home, you take that to the office and vice versa. You have a bad day at the office, you bring it home with you. Yeah. So it's all just life. And so when we all went remote and we were people were working from home, work and life were not separated by the nine to five hours or by the physical location of the office. And so people realized it's all just life. And if it's not in balance, it's not in balance and you have to do something about it. Yeah. So uh, that was kind of the second paradigm shift that I saw. And that's really what I can address is that question of, work-life balance it's not just it's neither it's all life i couldn't agree more with you and i remember when i was in an hr position together with my colleague at this time who was highly inspirational was thinking so much more forward and had a more modern <laughs> and progressive approach we were talking about life balance because you have one life 
full stop. And people were laughing at us. And they were like, what are you actually talking about? And I remember it so well. We were just like, we keep going about considering the entire life holistically. And what we must not forget is the fact that some people from the outside, we may perceive as they don't have a life balance because they spend 12, 14, 16 hours at work. They may be enjoying it, though, and they love that. And they get their whole energy and positivity from the work they are doing. So who are we to judge their level of balance, right? So Absolutely. it's exactly what you're saying. Absolutely. For instance, I'm very energized about this new sort of new encore career of mine speaking to corporations. Last night was Sunday night. My wife and I often watch a couple of television programs early on Sunday evening. And afterwards, I came in and went to work, quote work, but it was doing some of this stuff a bit for my new career but it wasn't work it's what energizes me yeah. so exactly it was a sunday evening and i was happy to dive into that absolutely and i can tell you a little bit about the third paradigm shift so Please. people in the first paradigm shift as i said people ask themselves this question is my life going as i want it and they answered no am i and uh, am i happy they answered no so this becomes the the big question is how do you make yourself happy and it's a little probably a little bit different in the UK from the United States, but in the US, we're certainly raised with this idea that you go to college, you get married, you have kids, you have a job that gives you occasional promotions, and you have a house with the white picket fence, and then happiness happens to you like a lightning strike or something, or by osmosis. But happiness doesn't actually happen that way. Happiness needs to be taught just like nursing skills or how to you know code on the internet or whatever those skills need to be taught and so that's the third paradigm shift is the opportunity the silver lining in the pandemic and the gigantic opportunity open to hr people and forward-thinking companies is to start treating their people of their whole life and focus on their whole life wellness and teaching them how to be happy human beings and when I've done this work with individuals where I teach them how to be happy, you know, the testimonials that I have, that I share on some of my marketing materials, you, you can see that I've really touched people's lives and they thank me profusely for it. So if companies do that and they give their employees this gift of happiness, not only are they making them happy employees we know are more productive, they're more resilient, they sell better, they're more creative, so they perform all better in the workplace, that drops right to the bottom line, but they also become super fans of your company because they're aware that this course that this guy that me that came in and taught them how to be happy, that was a gift from their HR department and now they're evangelical uh, proponents of their corporation and they become the best recruitment tool. Not only do they stay themselves, but they recruit new people because they're aware that this gift of this new happier life that they have, not nine to five, but all the time was a gift from their corporation. Yeah. And also to close the circle, right, of the whole paradigm shift, these people in particular, uh, the younger generations, pay attention to their overall well-being. It isn't just about climbing up the ladder, it might for some people not be at all about that. They will feel drawn to an organization like that, right? And valued and appreciated and connected. That's, that's the key. 
Absolutely. I saw a statistic, I can't remember who it was from, but it said 76% of younger workers, and it didn't say what ages, but 76% of younger workers would take a pay cut to get their ideal job. Wow. That's so, a large and number. They, like you say, they are so concerned about the mission of the company that it matches their life, their life purpose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your framework, obviously. Um, however, before we talk about the framework, let's quickly share with us your mission, because you said, you know, my new endeavor, my new adventure, I'm one that you are grateful for. What is it you like to contribute to this world? Well, I've had an awesomely wonderful life and I've gotten to achieve a huge number of my dreams. And so I'm really all about inspiring other people to live their dreams. And part of this framework that I teach in the courses that I do with businesses, a big part of it, probably the largest chunk of it, is how to go after your dreams how to figure out what your dreams are and then you prioritize them and you figure out how to make them real to you and i can walk you through the steps of that but it's it's basically this framework of how to figure out your dreams and your dreams don't have to be work they're not necessarily career dreams they could be or they personal dreams it doesn't matter but it's how to do all that how to go break through the fear because most of our dreams are separated from us by a little bit of fear often and uh, so I walk through steps of how to do that. And if I can share that with people and, you know, sometimes it's a couple years from when I work with them and then I hear back from somebody who said, wow, I looked at the, the dream list that I did with you three, two years ago and I, it's like I've accomplished a whole bunch of them. Well, <laughs> that's incredibly satisfying for, for them and for me. So what, how would you help people then who are not clear on what their dreams actually are, who feel so stuck that they are not aware? Well, the, the process is to sit down in a quiet place and take 15 minutes and write every single dream, everything you want to do or be or have or become. And you write it all down and you don't censor yourself. So if you want to be king of the world and if you want to have a private jet and a private yacht, write that down. Don't say, oh, that's unrealistic. Just whatever it is, don't censor yourself. Just write it down. You don't have to write any more than five or six or ten words for each idea. But really brainstorm. Get as creative as you can. You know, you want to attract a perfect partner. You want your kids to graduate college and become, you know, whatever they want to become. Whatever it is, write down all of those dreams and take 15 minutes or more to do it and then take a break and actually before you do it when you do it you want to stand up and you want to be engage your physiology so before you start you stand up you breathe deeply you inhale you get in a really positive state maybe you sit outside in nature some space that in, inspires you when you do that so that you're inspired and then you write all those dreams and then you take a short break and you come back and you break them down into immediate dreams, the ones you want to work on immediately, and then one to three year dreams, and then three year plus dreams. And then the next step is you make the dream real to your mind. And the way you do that, so you take the top dream, let's, you know, oh, you, you, when you organize the dreams, you, you've got the first one you want to accomplish on the top of your list. And you sit down and again, breathe deeply, get in an inspired space, feel good about yourself and imagine you've accomplished that dream mm -hmm. and then you're going to 
close your eyes and you're going to engage all five of your senses to make that dream real. So let me just give you an example. Let's say your, your dream is you want to take your family to Italy next year. And that's a big dream for lots of Americans. Yeah. So you want, to, you want to go to Italy. Well, close your eyes and imagine yourself at a restaurant and you're sitting outside on the terrace at a restaurant in Positano. And down below you, you see the deep blue Mediterranean Sea and you see little white sailboats down there bobbing at anchor and sailing across the Mediterranean. And you hear the people all around you speaking Italian and the waiter comes out to your table and he puts down some freshly made pesto that they only make in the hills there behind Positano mm -hmm. and you can taste the pesto and so you make the whole dream completely real to all five of your senses what does it sound like what does it feel like what does the air feel like is it humid is it uh, sunny outside all those things what does the pesto taste like when you put it to your mouth with the fresh bread that he brought you what are the sounds of the people speaking italian and you make it real to all of your five senses and you really uh, dive into that so that you can call back that point anytime you want and then when you've made it real the accomplishment of it real then you sit down and you start going through the process of what it would take to make that happen. So then you come up with an action plan. Okay, I'd have to, you know, Google uh, Italy and see where I want to go in Italy. And then I'd have to, you know, figure out when my kids are going to be on vacation from school and all those things. So you make up an action plan and that part of it's all really fun. And then comes the fear. Well, what can we afford it? Can we, you know, we don't speak Italian. We won't understand what's going on, whatever. So you, I have a process. I teach people to overcome their fears. And I could go into that. It's a couple minute long process as well. But I teach people how to break through their fears. And then you have this action plan. And then before you leave that moment, you take action on the first step, whatever it is. Maybe it's just to sit down and Google Italy and see where you'd want to go. But you take some action. And that's what gets the process started. So how do we overcome fear then in those moments? As you said, oh my God, I can't afford this. How am I going to do that? I don't speak the language. So uh, as you know, your, your listeners don't know yet, but uh, I'll tell them, I retired when I was 42 and my wife and I sold our home and we bought a sailboat and we spent the next 17 years sailing around the world. And when I talk about our sailing voyage, the first response most people give me is, oh, I would love to do that, but I would be afraid. Or they ask about what's the biggest storm you've ever had or what about pirates? So I've opened up this huge box of we sailed ev all around the world. We went to 100 countries and it's always so demoralizing to me when the first question people ask is something about fear. Yeah. I'd love to do that, but I'd be afraid. They don't say, what's your favorite country? Where was the prettiest sunset? How many different fish did you see when you snorkeled in the water? Whatever. They focus on their fear. And so I realized I had to break down my fear process. And I can tell you that crossing an ocean in a small boat is a fearful experience. Yeah, just you and your wife for 17 years. Very yes. small space. I know Very you love small her. Space. That's another issue. But, <laughs> but it certainly, you know, encountering a storm at sea is a fearful experience. Absolutely. So how do you deal with fear? So 
putting it in the context of what we did, I broke the fear down into individual little fears. So if somebody says, I would love to sail across the ocean, but I'd be afraid, well, what specifically are you afraid of? Are you afraid of getting lost? Well, carry two or three extra GPSs. Are you afraid of the boat sinking? Well, have a really stout boat and have extra bilge pumps and have a plan for all that. Are you afraid of how you do, what about if a health crisis comes up? Well, okay, well, let's take some first aid courses. Whatever it is, if you break your fear down into little tiny bite-sized chunks, get very specific about each individual fear. And so one dream, like sailing across the ocean, might have 10 different fears associated with it. But you come up with a solution, you break each fear down and come up with a solution for each one of those fears. And then once you've done that, you've got a plan for what happens if that fear comes to pass and you've got a solution for it already in mind. And so once you've done that, there's just one more step. You just have to take action. And courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is feeling the fear and going forward anyway. Mm -hmm. And so that's what you have to do. And when you put it in those contexts, most people can face their fears and they can get to the other side of them. But now it's it's one thing to say, you know, after 42 years of a successful career, I changed something. I might move to another job. But you said, no, let's get on a small sailing boat and just, you know, cross the oceans, go to 100 countries. And I'm still curious, by the way, where you saw the best sunset and do that. So where did you see the best sunset? The best sunset we saw in some little islands called the Isla Roques that are off the coast of Venezuela. And it was magical sunset went on for hours. Wow. What made it so magical? The colors just kept changing and changing and changing and it kept getting better and better. And we had other friends that were like five and 10 miles away from us in different anchorages. And we all were on the radio going, are you looking at this? Are you looking at this? Are you seeing it? So that's one of the things that made it special was that we can share it with other friends of ours as well. Let's come back. You made the decision to go ahead and sail the world for 17 years. So, so how, how did that happen? What was the thought process behind it? Well, we had a 10-year plan that we did want to go sailing. So that was already on our radar. We had mm -hmm. a 10-year plan and then we had a rather dramatic event survival event in our lives and it motivated us to make a change very quickly and i i'll tell you a little bit about this i mean we were on a backcountry ski trip in the colorado rockies and we got lost for five days and we were given up for dead and the the sheriff called off the search and the coroner announced that they would find our frozen bodies in the spring and we ended up getting out of the mountains that same day and i won't go into all the drama of it but it was a, it was a pretty big deal and the story about us had gone viral across the country so millions of people were following day by day to see if they'd find us and uh when we did actually get out the first call i received was from the president of the united states congratulating us on our survival so we had this roller coaster event of of that you know, then in the next few days, I heard from every friend I hadn't seen in 50 years or whatever, mm -hmm. and all of that. Mm -hmm. And we were on all the television news programs in the, in the United States. But my wife had 
gotten severe frostbite from sleeping out in the snow for those five days being lost and the third day back in the in the she was in the hospital the third day we got out and the doctors pulled me aside from her room and told me that they were going to have to amputate both of her feet and all of her fingers and her feet were coal black they were hard as a rock her fingers looked like you could snap them like a pretzel stick and so they told me that they were going to have to amputate both feet at the arch of the foot and then they would wait a few days and then they would do the surgery to amputate all of her fingers and i went home and i walked in the door and my wife's running shoes were right by the door there and i just collapsed on the floor i looked at her shoes and i collapsed on the floor and it was the most powerless moment of my life this mm -hmm. terrible tragedy was going to happen to my wife it hadn't happened yet it wasn't like a car accident that happens instantly and then you have to deal with the yeah. aftermath it was like i could see the car accident was about to happen in slow motion in front of me the next morning when they were going to take her to surgery and i could do nothing about it mm -hmm. and i just laid on the floor all night in a fetal position crying wondering what kind of life we were going to ever have after this and somewhere around three or four or five in the morning i must have fallen asleep but i woke up feeling the most powerful i had ever felt in my life i had gone from feeling the most powerless and out of control and life was going to land this giant brick on my head and i could do nothing about it i got up feeling super powerful i raced to the hospital before the doctors could talk to my wife and I told my wife she was going to have a complete recovery and we started planning all the incredible things we were going to do when she was recovered and we only focused on that and about an hour later the doctors came in with the nurse to tell her about the surgery and the nurse had the papers to sign for the surgery and we refused to sign the papers authorizing the surgery and so we were at a standoff with the doctors on this but we totally we focused completely on we decided, number one, to be happy right now. Hmm. We didn't say we will be happy when you are healed. We said we are happy right now. And we literally started having a party in her room. And when people came in expecting to, you know, be coming to a funeral that she was going to have this surgery, and we were in this party mode, and we focused only on being happy, and we gave total focus to what we were going to do when she was well. Not if she got well, when, when? she was well. Hmm. And it actually took a year. This, her feet were, the heels were okay. They were pink, but the rest of her foot was coal black. And in between was this little gray line between the pink skin and the dead black skin. And every day that little gray line moved closer and clo farther and farther down her foot. And it took a year, but uh, a year later we were on the beach in Cancun, Mexico with Tony Robbins at a Tony Robbins event. And she was dancing in the sand Aww. and she had two feet and she had 10 fingers and she had nine and a half toes. Goodness me. Oh my God. Goosebumps all over. What a story. Goodness me. Yeah. And then a year later, we, after her recovery, we took off on our sailboat. So, so what happened in that moment, if we rewind just for a moment, when you move from powerless to fully powerful, what, what do you think shifted there? 
that's really the crux of the question, and I'm not sure I can answer it really well, but I would say the first, the, the one thing that happened is I decided. I decided. And we all have something called locus of control, and locus just means location. And so we have a different, we either have an internal locus of control or an external locus of control or some, something along that spectrum. But if you have an external locus of control, you feel life happens to you. The doctors are going to do this. Life is going to do this to my wife. And if you have an internal locus of control, you believe you have control. And obviously, you don't have control over everything. But the more control you know you have and you exert, the more control you then do have. And so we, cre you know, if I mean, and my father was a doctor, so I very much respect the medical profession. I'm not into alternative medicine particularly. Uh, I have a super high regard for science and experts and doctors. And yet we decided that we were going to have a different outcome than the one they were telling us was the only outcome. So I guess that's the answer to your question is I decided to have an, an internal locus of control and to control what was going to happen. And I can give your listeners a little bit of an example of locus of control. Please. Uh, at one point in my career, I was doing some work with a company in Phoenix and one of their employees' car broke down. So she rode with me for several days to commute to the, the office. And in Phoenix, it's out in the middle of the desert. And so the roads are, the streets are really long, like quarter mile blocks and, you know, half a kilometer, I should say, between between streets. And you go rather rapidly on these big streets. And I was driving along this one street that we had to commute. And as I would do, get each light would turn green when I got to them. Oh, yeah. And this woman turned to me and said, wow, you're so lucky. The lights just always turn green when you get here. <laughs> And I kind of looked at her a little bit surprised. I didn't know what to say. And then I said, well, it's not luck. I know that if we go off of rush hour when we can drive at whatever speed we want, and if we drive 42 miles an hour, the lights are all timed and they'll all be green. And so she thought it was literally her locus of control was out. So whether the lights turned green or not was not in her control. Mm. And whether the lights turned green for me was in my control. Mm. And I can tell you because of our two differing viewpoints, I've had a whole lot more green lights throughout my whole life than she has. Yeah. And I mean green lights in a figurative sense, yes. <laughs> i.e. green light that your wife survives. So having this idea that you can control, if you can't control everything, you can control, at minimum, you can control your response to it. And so the first thing we controlled was our response to this tragedy that was in front, potentially in front of my wife. We never focused on the idea of, of amputation. We only focused on what we were going to do when she was well. I've got to come back to your point around anxiety. You don't feel this emotion of anxiety. Is that connected to this very tragic event where it evolved or how, how did that change? Part of the, the framework for happiness that I teach is one of the little, one of the steps that people can do for being happy is mindfulness. And if you've taken any, you've probably heard of mindfulness meditation. It's a yeah. very simple practice. Most people have at least heard of it. And what you do is you breathe deeply and you calm your thoughts. And if your thoughts wander, you just gently bring yourself back to focusing on your breath. What you do is you 
don't judge your thoughts. You observe what you're thinking, but you don't put any judgment on that. Because we can't control what our mind thinks about. What we can, in the subconscious sense, we can't control what our mind thinks about. And we don't need to judge it. And the other part of it is being present with when you're sitting in that moment of, of uh, breathing. You just be present with your thoughts. And I've expanded these both parts of that, the the non-judgmental aspect of it and the being present, I've expanded those to all of my life. If we can be present in life, we can experience a whole lot more. So I teach happiness. Happiness is an emotion that only exists in the present moment. I can't store up a bunch of happiness from yesterday and feel it today. Well, how good would I can that reminisce be? about, you can reminisce about the beautiful sunset you saw, but it's not the same as being in front of the sunset. So happiness is an emotion that only exists in the present moment. So if you want to be happy, spend more time in the present moment. That's one really simple clue. And if you are living life in the present moment, so when we sailed around the world, you can imagine it's very different than when you live at home and you do half of your things on autopilot, you drive from your home to your office on autopilot without thinking about it. You go about your house and your daily life on autopilot. But when you're in a foreign country and everything is new and different, or you're on a sailboat and doing the wrong thing could land your boat on a reef, you have to be aware and present every moment. And if people think about when they travel, their eyes are wide open, they're hearing all the sounds and smells and being totally present with that environment. Well, we lived that way for 17 years on our boat because we had to, to be safe. We had to be aware of what was going on. So for me, being in the present is like the only way I can live. I just don't live in the past or in the future very much. And so if you're being present so you can feel this happiness and the, the get all the juice out of the moment that we're in right now, there are two things you can't do when you're being present. You can't be beating yourself up over past mistakes and you can't be agonizing over the future. I think that clarifies to a certain extent my next question, in particular the agonizing over the future. Because I was just wondering how that step of being present, and I'm a huge supporter of meditation and mindfulness, right, fits with your framework for realizing your dreams where you have to plan, where you put down the steps and you have to literally look and envision your future. Well, the social scientists actually tell us that the what happens in your body in terms of your brain and your heart rate and uh, the chemicals you release, anxiety and excitement are almost exactly the same. That's what the scientists tell us. I don't remember all the details of which chemicals, but it's dopamine or whatever. But the chemicals that are released for anxiety and excitement are very much the same. So I get excited about my future. And if there's something that I can do about something, I do it. And if I can't do anything about it, there's no point in agonizing. I guess that's what anxiety is. I'm not a psychologist. A psychologist could certainly describe it or define it better. But I guess in my mind, anxious is worrying about something you have no control over. Mm -hmm. And so if there's something I can do to affect the outcome, I just do it. I take action. Mm -hmm. And if I can't take any action to affect the outcome. I just don't worry about it. So you've mentioned one step of your happiness framework, which is living to here and now, right? Are you, are you able to share a few more steps with us? Yes, definitely. 
I would say one of the first steps to happiness is to give yourself permission to be happy. Realize you're entitled to your own happiness. And I don't know where I got that, but I grew up all my life thinking that the only purpose in life was to be happy. You know, there's a famous quote from Aristotle who says, happiness is the meaning and purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. Mm. And I always grew up literally, I mean, I remember when I was a little kid, imagine yourself, you're that 10 year old you and it's the first day of summer vacation and you're out of school and you have a million dreams and plans for the summer. And I remember waking up early that first morning on summer vacation and, you know, the whole world is out in front of you and your goal is to be happy. Yeah. And I still live the same way. And you know, when I was a little kid, I would be out the door at 8 a.m. on my bicycle to go join my friends and my mom would yell out her two rules. <laughs> One of them was be home in time for dinner, which we never were. But the second rule was don't let anybody get hurt. So my goal is to be happy. And my one rule is I can't hurt anybody else along the way to my happiness. I'm loving this. So that's that's my first step is that you're entitled to be happy. Yeah. And so people have to give themselves permission to be happy. And then I would say I'll, I'll share another part of the, the framework for happiness is we all have some difficult times in our past. Whatever it is, some of us have a lot more than others. And if you have really serious trauma in your past, what I'm about to say is not going to work. If you have really serious trauma, you need mental health professionals, and that's what they are there for. But it, all of us have some less than, you know, super traumatic difficulties in our past. We couldn't get this far without disappointments in life. But it totally depends what the story is that you take from those difficult times in your life. And so part of my framework is inventing a new story. And when we sold our, our 2,800 square feet, I don't know what that is in meters, but a three bedroom house to move on to our little tiny 40 square, uh, 40 foot sailboat, we had a lot of stuff to get rid of. You know, you have all this three bedroom house and you have all your things and your clothes and most of it won't fit on a little tiny sailboat. So we had to get rid of a lot of stuff. And the only things that we could take with us on the boat, because space was so limited, were things that would help us sail better or live better in our new life on the boat, live better in this new sailing lifestyle. That's the only stuff we could take with us. And it's a perfect analogy for all of us for life because we're all carrying this baggage from yesterday that's not going to help us get to tomorrow. And so if you're carrying a bunch of old stories and old baggage that aren't going to help you become who you want to become, just do what we did, literally throw them overboard. Get rid of it. It's not going to help you become a better sailor or a better whatever you want to become tomorrow. And if it's not going to do that, just get rid of it and tell yourself a new story. So your viewers can't see me, but you can and you see I'm bald. But since I'm in my mid 60s, you probably think that's not a not a big deal. Mm. But in fact, I started going bald when I was in kindergarten. And when I was a little kid, it was not a big deal. But as I got a little bit older, it became a very big deal. And I got teased unmercifully for it. And I won't go into all of that. That actually turned into my greatest strength. But I would been wearing a hairpiece for most of my business career because I thought it made me more approachable in business. And the first thing I did as we sailed away from the dock is I pulled off my hairpiece and I frisbeed it away over the stern of the boat. 
because it wasn't going to help me in my new life. And I just started to start telling a new story about who I was. And everybody can do that. So I teach people a process where you sit down and focus on a painful memory from your past and you invent a new story for it. And the story, it doesn't have to, you can't change the past, but you can change the lesson that you learned from it. And one of the hallmarks of really successful people, I've been fortunate in my life to have met a couple of presidents and a number of uh, billionaires and a lot of Fortune 500 CEOs. And I would say a trait that all those people have is to learn the lesson from their past mistake but don't carry the pain of it with you. You know, we've all learned, we've all burned our fingers on the stove. And so one lesson you could learn from that is just don't eat every hot food again. And that would be really a shame, but we all do that in some form in our lives. You know, you have a bad breakup and, and then you meet somebody new and you already have one foot out the door on the new relationship. So that's not a good lesson to have learned from your breakup, you know? so really successful people, legendary leaders, for sure, they learn the lesson without taking the pain of the lesson with them through the rest of their lives. And coming back to your story about being bold or turning bold at a very early age, I remember you telling me a really lovely, at that point of time, perhaps a bit the sad story as well that you experienced when you were really, really young and perhaps harassed in the beginning, but you stood up for yourself, didn't you? Well, yeah, when I was really young, it wasn't a big deal. You know, when I was five years old and the other kids were, you know, they'd want to touch my bald head and then we'd go play or do whatever kids do. But by the time I was in fourth grade, I was getting teased unmercifully by the, the school bullies. And one day on the playground, these two sixth graders, much bigger than me, started teasing me and I kind of lost it. I got this tunnel vision. I heard this roaring in my ears and I lost it. And I just ran at these two much bigger kids with my little 10 year old fist swinging as hard as I could. And I don't remember what happened for the next few minutes, but when the playground uh, teacher pulled me off of the kid, I had one of them pinned to the ground and I was punching him and they both had black eyes and bloody noses and I wasn't hurt at all. And two things came out of that. When it was over, somebody said to me, you don't even care about those kids. Why? You don't even like those kids. Why do you care what they think of you? Mm -hmm. And I don't even know who said it to me. It could have been a parent, my parents, or it was maybe a teacher, or it could have been another student. But some wise person said to me, you don't even like those kids. Why do you care what they think about you? And the other thing that happened at the same time is because I had beat up these bullies that nobody liked, I became everybody's hero. So for a couple days at school, I was everybody's hero, which gave me this positive reinforcement that I attached to that idea of why do you care what these people think of you? And so from a very young age, at 10 years old, I realized that all my sense of self-worth comes only from me. It doesn't come from outside. What other people think of me is none of my business. And the reason most people don't go after their dreams, even before the fear, is they worry what other people will think of them. That's why most people don't even go after their dreams. They don't even get to the worrying about the fear stage because they wonder what's everybody else going to think. Yeah. Now, you can imagine when I was 42 years old and had a good career making movies and I told everybody we're going to sell our home and go sailing around the world, 
Most people didn't think that was such an <laughs> awesome idea in the prime of your earning years. But I lived by, I don't, didn't care what other people thought. As long as I wasn't hurting anybody else, I could go after my own happiness. And I know, I know you told me the last time we spoke, we could probably just talk about my sailing trip for a few hours. And I believe we definitely could. But I would love to delve a little bit deeper into your adventure with your wife. I mean, apart from your wonderful wife that you had with you, who were the people you met on the way that, you know, left a memorable impression that taught you something or where you, you still think of them and you have some very warm and heartfelt feelings? A beautiful question. Well, one part of the sailing lifestyle that is so special is the people you meet. That is the biggest part of it. And we didn't set out to sail for 17 years. We thought we were only going to go for two or three years, but eventually we just kept doing it. And we had people that we sailed with off and on for all of that length of time. And we might be together in the Caribbean for two years mm -hmm. and then not see each other for three years. And then the next thing we know, we're in Australia or Thailand together halfway around the world. And so that was one part of it was wonderful. But we went through a little bit of a, a transformation that applies very much to what we've been talking about is the first part of our sailing life was what I call the, the don't die phase. And that's where you're learning everything you need to do to be safe on the boat and take care of yourself and take care of the boat. And it was a very inward focus. We were totally focused on our own happiness, our own survival, our own, you know, learning what we needed to learn to be safe. And we were focused inward. And that was just a, maybe a short period for the first year or two. And then we were in a phase that was kind of the mutual benefit phase. We went to a lot of third world countries and a lot of poor people. And we always carried school supplies for the kids and pens and pencils and that sort of thing. And I would carry fish hooks for the men and we carried sewing supplies that we would we would give to the women. And that was wonderful. We were we knew we were having a little bit of effect. And then it also had a benefit to us because those people invited us to the into their lives. We got to see how they lived, which was a big part of why we were doing what we were doing. Mm. And so that was kind of a two way street, if you will, a mutual benefit phase. We did stuff for them. We got stuff back from them. But I said, you know, we had gone off to make ourselves happy and we certainly achieved that in stunning success. We were unbelievably blissfully happy. But after a while, we realized making yourself happy is not enough and real happiness comes from contributing to others and we realized that was missing from our lives because we just really weren't making a big enough contribution and all of the places we went you know when we gave them these things that i talked about the school supplies and all that it was a band-aid you know a year later six months later they needed all those same things again and we really weren't leaving anything lasting behind us and when we got to Indonesia, we met a young woman on the beach and she offered to be our guide in this reasonable sized city called uh, Kupang in Indonesia. It was our first stop in Indonesia and she offered to be our guide so she could practice her English. And we spent several days with her. She was such a kind, wonderful person and so smart. If she had been in the United States, she'd been on a full ride scholarship to Harvard or something like that but her parents only made like $200 a month. And luckily she had gotten a scholarship to go to a teaching college and that's what she was studying to be an English teacher. 
and she so inspired us that we knew there must be so many other young women like her that, you know, for a little bit of opportunity could make big things happen in the world. And so in the matter of one week, we put together a scholarship program to send other young women like her to school. And uh, we met with the headmasters of several of the high schools and we set up a criteria that was both financial need and, and academic achievement. And we met with the headmaster of the, uh, the president of the college and we got him to waive, we got the president of the university to waive all the entrance requirements for anybody that we would sponsor. Wow. And we knew that the other sailors like us that are just itinerant sailors, we only spent two weeks in this, this place, but, and all the other sailors sailing around the world go through the same way. They might spend a week or two or three there, but that's it. But we knew they would all want to contribute to something in the way that we felt we wanted to contribute. So we set up a scholarship program and it's been about uh, 13 years now and we've sent 29 kids through five years of college. Oh, goodness me. Wow. And so that ability to leave something behind is also one of the keys to your own happiness is to be able to contribute to others. Yeah, how does it make you feel? Well, it's certainly the best thing we did in 17 years of sailing. Yeah, Indonesia is very close to my heart, so I'm, I'm double feeling it, so to say here. Thank you for sharing this wonderful story. And obviously that, that is something you took back home, the sense of, you know, how important it is to give something back and how it can leverage your sense of happiness. What were other lessons that you took back home? Well, I think one of the things that we learned that is a key part of my framework for happiness is gratitude every day. And I told you that, you know, my key emotion these days is feeling love and feeling gratitude. That came to us from we were living this unbelievable lifestyle on the boat and literally every day for the first year or two, we would pinch ourselves and look at each other and say, do you believe we get to have this lifestyle? I mean, we had had a great life before we got to travel all over the world making movies, and this was a hundred times better than that. And so gratitude just became a part of who we were. And just the way I talked about living in the present moment, that became a part of who we were. I, I can't really live any other way now. I mean, I'm here with you now. What I'm going to do in an hour doesn't even really cross my mind. I'm totally here right now. I never look at my phone while I'm doing one thing. If I look at my phone, it's because I that's what I'm going to do at that moment. But I don't do it while I'm with you. So living in the present, feeling gratitude, those are definitely parts, things that we learned out sailing that we brought home to us as part of who we are. And you know what? I'm a true believer in particular in the present, um, living in the present, living in the moment. I'm not saying I'm perfect at it, but I personally notice when I focus on one thing, I feel more fulfilled. I do it right. I feel focused. I feel more immersed in whatever I'm doing. And I also notice I need to discipline myself to do that because nowadays you are so easily distracted. 
And we have a lot of discussions at home about that, in particular, since we have had a, a little son. And <laughs> I definitely don't want him to sit around a table and mommy and daddy are on their phones scrolling through social media. You know, I have fond memories of the past in my childhood where we were sitting around the table in the evening. That's when the family comes together and we have conversation and we know about each other's world and we can appreciate what's happening and how little one develops and so on. So it's something that's very close to my heart. Absolutely. But and I, we know the social scientists, you know, six or eight or 10 years ago, multitasking was the, the big skill. And now the social scientists tell us it's a recipe for lousy performance. Yeah. And I, I fully agree with that. And every time I hear, well, women are so good at multitasking, I'm like, BS. And I don't want to be good at it. I have no interest. Absolutely. And I'm definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> so and like I say, happiness is that that emotion that we all want and it only exists in the moment if you're not paying attention to it you're not going to get it so what's your top tip for listeners who struggle with living in the here and now but who may not have the opportunity to get on a boat on a big adventure to practice it now there and to learn it what else can they do i'm not sure i have a great answer to that but maybe some mindfulness meditation is a good way to start with that practice of of being here and being now and the other way is, I mean, we know what the biggest distraction is, obviously, it's your phone and your social media. So put it down, you know, I mean, yesterday, I went off to, uh, to play pickleball for three hours, and I left my phone at home. And, you know, I thought about it as I was in the car driving away. It's like, oh, I forgot my phone. So what? I went off and did my thing. And, you know, I know probably a a millennial or a Gen Xer might say, what do you mean you were without your phone for three or four or five hours? It's like, for me, it's like, I, you know, so what? Yeah. Nobody I need to talk to right now, I'm fine. Yeah, absolutely. We'll survive. Um, I, I keep telling myself, well, my grandma, my great grandma, they managed, you know, to survive and to have a pretty good life. So why shouldn't I? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, when I go out to dinner with my friends, I put the phone away because I want to focus on why I why they're my friends, why they're special to me. And I want to give that as much focus as I can. And as I said, you can only get the amount of happiness you're willing to pay attention to. Yeah, I would like to um, talk about one more topic, if that's all right, Rob. Sure. And that topic is you knowing right from the start what you wanted to do, at least for a part of your life until you turn 42 and that that wish to make movies basically was there pretty early on wasn't it yes and i i knew at the time when i was in high school i knew i wanted to go into photography and film school and i knew how lucky i was that i did know that if you'd asked me at the time how i knew or whatever i i wouldn't have been able to say i just knew i was lucky all my other friends were doing what most 18 year olds do. They applied to a bunch of different liberal arts colleges and, you know, they changed their major two or three times along the way. And that's much more normal. And so I don't really know how I got to that point in my life that I knew, but I do have a recipe I can share with your listeners for what I advise college students now when I do speak to college students. And it's, a, it's another three-step process to figure out what your passion is. And the first step is to write down everything that you're good at or that you would like to learn to be good at 
or that your friends ask you for help with that they rec your friends recognize you're good at it. So everything that you like to do, anything you do that you that time flies by when you're doing it, those kinds of things. And let's just say you like to write poetry. And of course, writing poetry is a pretty rough way to make a living, you would say. I mean, you know, there's a few, one poetry book for every 500 other kinds of books, and it, the poetry book only sells 20 copies anyway. So you might say, I love to write poetry, but that's a completely impractical thing to do for my life. So I'll go work at McDonald's instead. So you, step one is you've identified that you like to write poetry. You go through that process of figuring out all the things that you're good at, that you like to do, that time flies when you do them. And then you figure out how you can solve a problem for somebody by doing what you love to do. So let's take this completely impractical thing of writing poetry. Well, who could you solve a problem for by writing poetry? Now, the answer that I've come up with, and I don't happen to like to write poetry, but one answer would be, you could be a songwriter for pop stars, country stars, rap stars, whomever, whatever kind of poetry you like to write. You, those people need new songs all the time. Yeah. So you pick the, you know, the, the country western singers, they need new material all the time and they are looking for people that can write poetry lyrics for them. So you've identified who you can solve a problem for by doing that thing that you like to do. And then the third thing is, how can you get paid doing that? Well, obviously, songwriters get really well paid for with their royalties when they sell a song and the song gets aired every time on the radio or Spotify or whatever, they get a few pennies. So that's the three-step process is what do you love to do? Who can you solve a problem for by doing it? And then how can you get paid by doing that? And I talk with college students and give them that bit of advice. And that's that's a way to find your passion and then figure out how to make a living doing your what you're passionate about. And I did that. I started my own. I went to film school instead of college. I went to a three year film school right out of film school at 20 years old. I started my own production company. And by my mid 20s, I was traveling all over the world, making movies for Fortune 500 companies and television networks. And not only that, the things that I love to do are skiing and mountain climbing and kayaking and all these adventure sports and travel. And those were the films I was making. I was go climbing mountains in the Himalayas or Alaska and making films on those mountains. I was doing first descent kayak descents with the best kayakers in the world. I was filming ski racing. Uh, I had a TV series on the Travel Channel that we traveled all over the world for. So I managed to do all the things that I love to do, combining my passion and getting paid for it. And I did it for 20 years. And I tell people I made films for 20 years and I loved it for 19 and a half years. And when I stopped loving it, I stopped doing it. And that's when we took off on the boat. Yeah. And yet you loved it for 19 and a half years. Yes. I believe you already answered part of the uh, the question in terms of, you know, where you have been, what you have been filming and how you could fulfill your passion with it. What else helped you to remain in love with your work? I'm just a really high energy, really curious person. I think curiosity is a really underrated attribute. It's something that can really help you. If you're curious about things and curious about people, I think it affects how you see the world. Mm -hmm. And that's what opens up doors and keeps me interested. And 
I don't know that I'm answering your question the best I can, but that's the best answer I can give, I guess. Yeah. And you know what? You speak from my heart. Curiosity is a word I probably annoy a lot of people I work with with because I highlight, I bang on about curiosity because I do believe that as well. And I've traveled quite a bit, but not as much as you did. And one thing I take home every time is curiosity, this authentic, real curiosity in people, getting to know them, understand their cultural backgrounds and delve into it, experience it yourself. And I notice it in my day to day that it helps me with the non-judgmental approach, turn it into curiosity. Absolutely. And your perspectives go like this, they widen. Absolutely. And that's the thing, you know, when we traveled, we first went to the Bahamas and I remember checking in, it was our very first country and this was long time ago and they were using carbon paper and typewriters to fill in our immigration form and i thought this is so backwards we've had computers already for 15 years in the states or something and so that was my first thought was this is so backwards the way they do things and then luckily i slapped myself and my second thought was if i wanted it done like i did in america i should have stayed home and my purpose was not to judge them but just to observe and so that's what we took with us from, from, from that country onwards. We never judged anything. We never compared it to how they do it in America. Our goal was to just observe what we could and learn from them without being judgmental about it. Yes, exactly. And that is a, a key to happiness. You mentioned a non-judgmental part already, but curiosity, I would definitely add to it as well. Absolutely. Rob, are people still able to learn from you how to be happy and how to experience happiness? Uh, yes, we have some uh, resources on my website. If they go to my website, it's Rob Dubin, R-O-B-D-U-B-I-N.com. And on the Frequently Asked Questions page, there's a little form they can fill out and they'll get an email with a list of uh, PDFs they can download, things on finances, how we were able to afford to retire at 42, things that anybody can do. Uh, some relationship tips, because we often get asked, how did the two of you get along in a 40-foot <laughs> sailboat for all, all that time? And then there's the, this happiness framework and some insights for how to live a more extraordinary life. There are things like that. So they can download all of those resources there. Brilliant. So uh, a generous offer here from Rob for you. Make use of it. That would be my recommendation. Rob, it's been such a pleasure talking to you and to hear about so many of your inspirational stories. Thank you so, so much for being a guest on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy talking with you. <laughs> thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening in today. I'm pretty sure you've taken a lot of fantastic insights and inspirations with you. And I can't wait to hear from you or to read your feedback and yeah, to help me understand what helped particularly. What are you more curious about? So in that case, you can always get in touch with us. Obviously, we are going to share Rob's social media and website addresses with you in the show notes so stay tuned and get in touch but for now have a wonderful week and speak to you very soon bye bye everybody thank you so much for listening to the legendary leaders podcast if you enjoyed this episode then remember to subscribe to the show either on itunes spotify amazon music or on my website www.kathleenmerkel.com i would also love to hear from you to discover what topics you'd like to hear more about what topics really resonated with you and how you're enjoying the show in general. 
please do leave your review on iTunes as well. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much and speak to you again next time. Bye.